Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Angel. We are a podcast devoted to uh, angels, VCs, investors, family offices, and also the founders, startup um, entrepreneurs that they represent and that they often work with. Uh, remember to follow us on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple, Audible, Amazon. Uh, we're on Spotify. We're on YouTube, audio and video. Make sure to rate us and rank us and subscribe to us and share us. We really appreciate that. Today, we're joined by Ryan Del Grosso, and he has a very interesting story and is at a at a real kind of an interesting tipping point in his career. Welcome, Ryan. Great to have you. Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. And, and um, Ryan's interesting for a lot of things. You know, I don't normally like read out somebody's um, somebody's LinkedIn tagline, but li listen to this one. Harvard MBA special operations veteran, nonprofit leader. Um, and we're going to get into all of that, I promise you. Um, also, Ryan is, um, um, is anticipates being hired by a company called TeamShares, which has a super interesting model. Um, TeamShares actually um, finds and recruits uh, presidents and CEOs um, and then finds some companies. Is that about right, Ryan? Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, introduction to TeamShares. And I think what makes them unique is their employee ownership model and how they uh, issue equity ownership for employees. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that uh, at some point. Yeah, yeah. So um, so it's great to have you. And and um, I also want to point out you're the president of Huts for Vets uh, based in, um, in Aspen in the Roaring Fork Valley. Um, and um, uh, that's a new a new position for you, relatively. And um, you haven't even started the team shares job, so we're kind of we're kind of talking to you in anticipation of doing a lot of great things. But let me let me start with um, your special ops career. I know because it's special ops, you probably can tell us nothing, right? You can't tell us anything about that. Um, that's okay. But what I'm interested in is why would a special ops guy and how many special ops guys go to harvard business school where you just graduated um so i, I would say like the veteran community represents roughly eight percent of, of the hbs class environment um and probably about 25 percent of that is uh comes from the special operations community whether that's the marine special operations community army navy or, or air force and you were air force is that right i was yeah and what um, what was the tr transition like from the military um, to an extremely competitive business school? Yeah, so I think what was what was easy about going from an extremely competitive environment to an extremely competitive environment from special operations right. to uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, what was easy about it was knowing how to compete and being resilient and, and, and staying in the fight. I think what was really difficult was to almost restart your entire understanding of of uh not the world writ large but like how business functions how all the different opportunities that existed outside of the government the dod the department of state etc so you almost had to learn this whole new world and language and uh, just the way of interacting with uh different structures which i found to be very challenging but also extremely exciting which is one of the reasons i wanted to go to business school which was to to learn that language and learn that new environment. The language and the terminology is important though. I know in the military, you're like, the military is nothing but acronyms, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think a lot, it's funny because a lot of finance people will, will make the joke, it's the military's acronyms and then they'll talk about LTV, CAC, EBITDA, 
bit of a or whatever, you know, like it's a, it's a joke. It's but it's uh, so we, I think it's it's interesting how much of a language and culture difference uh, transfers over. But yeah, new acronyms, different game. When you before you went into to applied to business school, what were you looking at other options? Were there other things you were thinking about at that point? Yeah, I think so. The three kind of pathways I saw was I, I didn't I didn't know that I was going to leave the military explicitly. Uh, and I was I was looking at so at this point I'd, I'd been in for about nine and a half years, uh, and my um, my wife and my, my my two children and I were all kind of looking at each other, you know, being being very young, going, you know, is this is this what we're going to do for the rest of our our time, and what are my options? So I looked at staying in the military, and I looked at what that would be. I looked at going straight into industry, and I looked at you know education uh, or higher education, mainly business school, and um, I realized for me that um, I really wanted to provide stability. I really wanted to provide um, growth for my kids in a, in a stable community. And I felt like at the time, for me, military service it wasn't going to jive with that, especially because my wife, Rachel, is an extremely successful Air Force officer as well. And I knew yeah. that you know those, those, those careers would eventually start to compete and, and, and locations would compete. And I wanted to make sure that I was able to step back and provide her the space too, to, to excel in her career um, versus, um, you know, having to potentially follow me to an assignment that was not of her choosing. So, what is her career in the Air Force, right? Yeah, so she's a really amazing acquisitions officer. Uh, so what she does is she procures uh, and, and program manages uh, all sorts of different types of program records for the U.S. government. She also worked um, a really interesting job at, at Boeing. Uh, where she did a DCMA gig, which is basically she worked in Boeing and helped manage a contract in there and sold the, I think the first PAs to the Australians. Really, really cool. Um, so she's done a lot of really interesting stuff. And now she's teaching at the um, U.S. Air Force Prep School. And um, so she was a prep school uh, graduate and then before she went to the Air Force Academy alongside myself. And um, she really wanted to give back in that space. And she's absolutely crushed that. And she's actually transitioning out of the military as well. So... Um, I mean, if you want to talk about another angel podcast, interesting person to interview, uh, Rachel Fabroso is definitely on the list. Yeah, you sound like an interesting couple. And you met in the Air Force um, at the academy, it's, uh, you said. Um, and um, and you've been married for how long? Uh, yes, yeah, so we have an interesting story. So we actually, um, like all marital couples do, we, we had our struggles and we decided to separate for a bit. Um, but we have since uh, gone through a lot of growth and there's been a lot of therapy. So we've been together for, since we were 19, I'm 33 oh. now, so about 14 years and uh, we are rebuilding our family together and we're really excited about it. So you've known each other a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. And have you, and you've now settled in Colorado. Where, where are you in Colorado? Uh, so currently we're in the Springs, uh, just the Colorado Springs area. And we're wrapping up her and concluding her career. And then we're going to be relocating to Denver. Yeah, the Springs is a is a Colorado Springs is an absolutely gorgeous, uh, one of the prettiest um, cities in America. I'm asking all these questions. These are not typical questions in this podcast, but what I'm what I'm kind of building up to here is um, what you're doing with uh, Huts for Vets. So you just graduated. You haven't even started your job at Team Shares. You don't even know what it is, right? You don't even know what company you're. Yeah, going to I'll be the I'll be the president slash CEO of a small medium business in Denver, and uh, so that's that's about all the information I have uh, as far as my role. Yeah, and, about team shares. So so, but you're. Um, I happen to know the um, Huts for Vets um, 
um, nonprofit quite well. I'm I'm friends with Paul Anderson, who was the founding executive director. It was, uh, and also Fred Venrick, who was one of the board members, a very close friend of mine and a former former Marine. And um, um, so Huts for Vets, I'll let you describe what it does. Sure. So Huts for Vets, first off, I, I want to say if you, if my, my, the smile on my face about Paul is if you've ever met Paul and and uh, he is an enigmatic, uh, wonderful human who built this amazing uh, nonprofit called Huts for Vets, um, where he has single-handedly figured out a way to um, connect his two worlds, which is the Roaring Fork Valley and his love of giving back to the veteran community. So what Huts for Vets is, is it takes um, veterans from all across the nation and it brings them to beautiful Aspen, Colorado. And we use um, readings, nature, and the 10th Mountain Division Huts as our setting to have our veterans be able to build new communities and build uh, new fellowships with other veterans mm -hmm. as a way to provide psychological and social healing um, that could be complementary to what they're either currently doing or not doing. So um, in, in a nutshell, Huts for Vets is a way for uh, our veterans that have suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder or some type of post-traumatic stress injury to reconnect uh, with nature and reconnect with themselves. Yeah, the literary angle is no accident. Paul is a terrific writer, uh, journalist, really well known in, in Colorado, um, in addition to starting this, this nonprofit. So what, what do you think makes this so appealing for, for some veterans um, after their service? And, and what, what, um, what gap does it fill uh, in your your mind now, you're just out of the service. You're a good person to ask. What what kind of what's kind of the hole that it's trying to fill? Do you think? Yeah. So what I what I think is pretty impressive about the program is it it's it it doesn't have a direct. It's not attempting to fulfill a direct mission. Like a lot of the services that are out there for veterans are like you know that they currently have access to are take medication from you know whatever type of, you know, mental health provider you have, and that fixes, you know, problem. And, you know, so it's, it's always like this methodology of, you know, like you have problem A, provide solution B. And it's what's like really pharmacology, like pharmacology, right? Pharmacology, uh, even other times of psychotherapy, et cetera. Like it's all about providing that thing. And what I, what I think Huts for Vets attempts to do, which is very, very different, is um, it attempts to um, provide space from the world that our veterans are currently living in. Um, and it's not a one hour visit or a telehealth visit or something like that. It's, it's I need you to disconnect from everything that you, is currently holding you down in your life. And I'm gonna provide you space and the organization is gonna provide you space with other veterans and these beautiful literary texts that Paul has curated in a, an amazing setting. And it and is going to allow you to have just time, space and silence in your life to have conversations or not and process in a, in a new way um, versus um, some of the other, you know, there are many amazing modalities and the modality that Paul has chosen that we continue today at Huts for Vets is that it's providing the space to have the silence for the conversation. So you get out of Harvard Business School, uh, your head is full of uh, all kinds of, um, I don't want to say nonsense, but because not nonsense, but all kinds of theories uh, sure. All kinds of ideas about how to do things, uh, practical things, theoretical things, strategic things. And then you come into this job immediately after that uh, to run this nonprofit. So what 
about your your MBA and your education did you apply to this particular challenge? Yeah, so I I mean, so there's a couple different courses. It's it's really interesting. Nonprofit and for-profit businesses look about the same. Just the revenue models are a little bit different. Um, so it wasn't that big of a leap. And I think the what couldn't be understated is is I have um, you know the nine and a half years of military special operations officer experience of running running organizations as well. So that paired with business school really provided me a framework to understand that like it's it's about just understanding how the organization works, the humans that are in the organization, and then helping to agree and align on a mission and then figuring out just case by case, individual fact by individual fact, just peel, peeling back the layers of what do we need to do to have the biggest impact? What do we need to do to make sure that we're governing ourselves correctly? And then, you know, how are we building a community that this nonprofit's mission supports? And, and I think just those big core tenets of understanding what are the what are the building blocks that makes Hud for Vet successful, and then finding the people to to fulfill those uh, those roles. And what's what's interesting is um, you're also coming in at a, as as I understand it, where Paul Anderson is uh, stepping back a little bit. So it it reminds me of kind of the classic startup dilemma, isn't it? Where Paul has started this organization, run it run it for quite a while, um, and now the organization has to learn to survive without him on a daily basis. So um, uh, what have, uh, first of all, have you, have you um, uh, brought in a new executive director or, or what kind of, what kind of, yeah. I'm also curious about like, you must've studied that at, at Harvard business school, right? Is like transition and all of these things. So, yeah. so what, what, how did what you learned in school, so to speak, compare with what you've seen now in the real world of a nonprofit? What's what's interesting about Harvard Business School specifically is it, it it uses the case method. So everything we do is through the context of a real world example yeah. to include having those CEOs or those individual protagonists attend. So, you know, when the Etsy CEO sits in front of you and tells you how he led through a transition or, you know, the Alaskan Airlines. And these are these are great, you know, individuals who, who we got to study through and learn and learn through. Uh, and I would reiterate that Paul Anderson um, built a great organization and did a phenomenal job handing over to the new executive director, uh, Eric Yusano, and he's killing it right now. We're so impressed with Eric. We're really, really happy where he's been. He's been a part of the organization for, I want to say, eight years. So any any mistakes are my own and, and not from Eric saying that. So, But um, he's been a part of Putz Arrest for a long time, and he is leading us in the 2023 season that actually kicks off tomorrow. Um, so for what I'm doing really and what I'm seeing on the horizon from a, you know, a, a change management is, is really just understanding, okay, like when you have that founder who is so strong, Paul, amazing orator, human uh, fundraiser is he has a lot of that knowledge. I mean, he's so smart that all that knowledge is, is retained somewhere. And now the organization needs to unravel how do we fill the gap that that Paul left? And and we've have some and it's really cool because the mission is so strong and Paul's ability to recruit people towards the mission is so strong that people have started to fill those gaps without really needing to be asked to. So uh, I'm, I'm really impressed at I guess in my mind about how well uh, the organization has positioned itself. And there are challenges, and I can speak to those too. Uh, and I think some of the challenges are, is exactly what I'm saying, is putting the frameworks and understanding, okay, Paul stepped 
Paul has stepped down as the executive director and still remains close, but how, how do we lead Huts for Vets into the, its next iteration? And not, there's nothing to, you know, nothing was bad before, but how do we create it in, in, our, in the image that we want it to be for, for the future? And aligning people around that vision, it, it's hard. Uh, you know, and making sure that you, you use a community-based approach is, is not an, an easy task. So I think um, the one thing that I would say is different from the case method at, at Harvard is um, it wraps up in about 80 minutes. You know, you, you read the case, <laughs> you, you're prepped for it, you go in the classroom, you, you do about 60 minutes, the CEO, whatever steps in and, and then, okay, the case is solved, the business is saved and everyone goes home. And this is a long march. You know, this is a, this is a, not a, something you fix in a weekend, you know, you know or you reor uh, reorganize in a weekend. So I guess for me, being a young leader, it's really about understanding the length required and time required and, uh, and pacing of, of how, how, how much change you inject in the organization, how fast, and making sure that you're, um, you know, moving with people instead of moving against them, you know what I mean? Bring, what, bringing them along. Yeah, and what, what, if, what did you learn in the military and special ops for the Air Force that you're now applying. And tell us a little bit about, you know, I'm very curious about what you actually did in, in special forces, special ops rather, um, and what that means and kind of what kind of skill set is required in, 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 in that area, in that position. Yeah, so um, I was in the, uh, what's called special tactics. Um, it is the, if you think of what special forces is for the army or navy seals is for the navy I, I did that for the air force so we're a ground combat force that does special operations for air force special operations command in conjunction with our other sister services underneath special operations command and jsoc uh so that that's what i did i was an officer in that and i led um, uh, at various levels in that organization um and yeah so so what skill sets we really look for in, in the officers and the NCOs, so the non-commissioned officers and our enlisted leadership structure, is people who are good problem solvers, that people who are very, uh, you know, understand, are, are, are good people leaders. They understand how to, you know, understand human infrastructure and, and understand that humans are more important than the hardware that they, that they come with. Um, we look for people who are, you know, Genuinely, like the average, you know, special operations and special tactics airman is is incredibly intelligent, you know, enlisted or officer. Uh, so we look for kind of those three attributes. Really, um, it's you know resilience, uh, intelligence, and you know capability of thriving in um, you know environments that that are ambiguous and, and unknown. So for me, something that would look like for me would be you know as a 25 year old, it was okay. You're gonna go to Southeast Asia and Here's a clearly undefined mission and come back, propose that and tell us how much it's going to cost. And, uh, you know, basically produce a small business plan for this, uh, you know, security issue that we have in Southeast Asia in conjunction with our partner nations. Oh, no, by the way, you, you don't speak the language. Oh, by the way, you never <laughs> been there. And uh, so you got 30 days, go figure it out, you know. And, uh, you know, I think, Ryan, you just described the plot to Apocalypse Now. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, go over there, find uh, you know, go down the river, <laughs> you know, find the rogue agent, bring him home or kill yeah. him. Um, but but well, I think well, if I can if I can, Michael. So I think what's really interesting yeah. sometimes and what I found at, at Harvard is a lot of people that I ran into thought veterans, and just to plug for the veteran community, 
they they took orders a lot. You know, they it was it was here's your exact role, your exact this is the what you have, these are the resources, this is exactly what I want you to do, just do it. And uh, a lot of people thought that that's was my experience. And, and uh, what I want to make a plug for is on the entrepreneurs that are listening or the leaders that are listening, that the veteran community is all about resourcefulness and all about, uh, you know, how do you, you know, do more with less. It's learning. Yeah. So it's about uh, entrepreneurial spirit, about, you know, ill-defined under, you know, defining missions, defining values, and then pitching them up as just like you would to a venture capital firm or to, to an investment committee. and those same skills relate they're just a different language so our veterans are very uh, agile and, and understanding can thrive in a lot of environments they don't need as much uh, guidance as you might think they do and, and were you actually in combat at any point i was in afghanistan uh from 2017 wow. to 2018. so for two years no it was, it was a six-month rotation yeah yeah so okay, I, so I get the perk of being able to say 17 to 18 but it was really just uh yeah um, over the winter there so um what can you tell us about that experience? Um, yeah, so I think it taught me a lot about risk management. I'll speak to that side about it. Um, and it and it taught me a lot of that um, that people. I don't. This is a weird phrasing, but um, understanding what you're really. So a lot of people say like, I assume the risk, or I take on certain risk, right? Like, it's fine, it'll be good, we'll capture upside, I'm, I'm assuming the risk. There's a difference between between hoping the risk won't happen and really understanding and accepting the risk of an endeavor, uh, whether that's in combat or with, you know, investor money or with, with anything. Uh, and I think what I learned is I really respected leaders who understood and accepted the outcome that they didn't want uh, and would would build in the right contingency planning to make sure that if that did happen, it was okay, or at least it was mitigated to the best possible stance versus leaders who just were uh, all upside focused and, and didn't understand and didn't really, didn't really accept the risk. They just wished it wouldn't happen. And right. I think what it taught me to do is that their due diligence is a real thing and acceptance of risk is much different than hoping it doesn't happen. Right. So maybe seeing the, seeing the real world as it really is, as opposed to seeing it as you want it to be, maybe, or as you hope it to be. Yeah. 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 I think, I think, I think that didn't help me completely for a lot of times in my life, you know, because I think there's, it was, it was kind of walking away from that combat oriented role where the outcome is, you know, is your friends, you know, dying uh, and, um, and, and pivoting that to like learning how to capture outside again. Uh, instead of mitigate downside risk. And I think that's something that uh, Harvard really helped me with, which was understanding, accepting, and mitigating downside risk, but really learning how to capture upside potential and, and being hopeful and seeing the world in a way that you wish it could be and, and pushing for that. Yeah, I, and I want to make clear, um, I, I want to uh, I want to make clear that you're not speaking for team shares at all in this interview. You haven't started there. So, but I do want to talk in general terms about the concept of a company um, essentially buying small business um, uh, and and creating owners like yourself. Um, and I, I'm wondering what, I mean, you had a lot of options. You went to Harvard Business School. You could have gone to Wall Street, I'm sure. You could have worked at Blackstone or J.P. Morgan or Goldman. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not, but... 
<laughs> Maybe you're too smart for that. But but you could have worked at Colgate Palmolive. You could have, you know what I'm saying. There were there were yeah, all those all of those opportunities were staring you in the face. Instead, you you migrated and moved toward small business, essentially, right? And ownership. What what was what was so appealing about that for you? Yeah. So I I, um, I think what was interesting for me was when I went to Harvard Business School was I had never been asked so many times why did you join the military. <laughs> um, and, and I mean that like, because like sometimes in the military, you're asked that, right? When I was 18, um, you know, this is seven years post nine 11, I'm going to a service academy. There's not a lot of small town. America is not really asking a lot of questions of why you're doing this. You know, it, yeah. it made a lot of sense. And when, once you're in, no one's asking either, or they already know the unspoken reason why. So now, you know, I'm, I'm 31 at the time. And, and for the first time, I think in my life, I genuinely be asked been asked by somebody, um, why did you join the military? And not because they just want me to say whatever royal kind of answer. They have no clue why anyone would join the military. They have, it's so far beyond them uh, yeah. that, that this yeah. is even a thing that you would do. Um, so it made me do a lot of reflecting and thinking about um, how I got to the position that I was in. And I grew up um, with a very hard working, you know, um, lower class family that moved to, you know, just barely scratched into lower middle class and, and, and you know, and has continued to do well over time. Uh, and so that, that experience for me left college to be one of those things that was the military was a big social mobility tool for me. So sure. I started to realize that the a la carte menu that I was given when I was, you know, 14 years old, looked nothing like the a la carte menu that was presented to, to some of my classmates as far as what were options post high school. Yeah. I mean, the model for going to college out of high school wasn't a model that my family understood or did. Um, so, so did you have to go to the Air Force in order to go to college? In other words, it's a it's a full scholarship. Uh, you don't pay anything. Was that uh, that must have been part of the appeal? Uh, I think the no, I, I mean, that was an appeal for sure. Uh, free college is always an appeal. I had other offers. I mean, the the, the, US, the service academies are uh, really, really good institutions that are very difficult to get into. So sure. I had full ride athletic and, and scholar, other scholarships from other institutions. Um, what, but what was I your sport? What was your sport? I was a track athlete and cross country. Uh, yeah. I was the, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, um, I ran. So you had options and you still went in. I did. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Saudi Arabia um, until I was about nine years old. And uh, so 1990 to 1999-ish in, uh, in Riyadh. And um, my parents were both junior enlisted members in the Air Force. And 9-11 to me was a very, felt very close to home given my previous experience in the Middle East. And, um, and the community that I was a part of uh, had a very big draw to people joining the military. So my father kind of shook me in when I wanted to enlist and said, um, you've done very well in high school and academia. You're going to college, dude. He's like, I didn't, you're going. So I was like, okay. So I started to picture what that world would be. Uh, and, um, and the service academy was very appealing to me. So I uh, was in Colorado, which I loved. And then it was also free and it provided opportunities. And it was like Ivy League stature. I was like, all right, checks all the boxes. Let's do it. Yeah, you know, it's funny, um, and I, I want to remind everybody, you're listening to the Angel podcast with me, Michael Conniff, and uh, Ryan Del Grosso is the uh, is uh, about to become uh, a president and CEO of a small business, thanks to Team Shares. He is now the head, the president of the board at uh, Huts for Bets, 
He's a Special Operations Air Force officer who also has the Harvard Business School pedigree. He just graduated. Um, and um, I want to remind everybody to look for this podcast on all the major platforms, Apple, Amazon, uh, and so on. Also on Spotify and YouTube. Make sure to rate us, rank us, um, subscribe to us if you, if you would, uh, share us. You can also get on our emailing list. Uh, which has now grown to uh, well over, I think we're like six or 7,000 now. So it's pretty exciting. And I, I want to point out to you, Ryan, that um, in thanking you for doing this, that this is going to be the first part of at least a two-part interview because <laughs> I'm dying to see what it's like um, once you start to run your own business. Um, I think this team shares model is extremely important. Um, and I know you've been talking to other executives at, at Blackstone and elsewhere who are very much devoted to see, seeing if we can spread the wealth of this country, which is, I, to me, it's like, it's almost like job one, that the wealth is so concentrated. Anything that can, can kind of make that better, make that broader is going to make us a stronger country. And that's probably why you went into the military in the first place, right? To make this a better world, a better country. Yeah, it's the purpose-driven aspect in the communities I grew up in that took care of each other. And I saw that in the military. I saw that in team shares and employee ownership and something yeah. I want to commit my life to. And huts for this. So so um, thanks thanks for being with us. We'll, we promise to um, have you back soon. Thanks again, Ryan. Really appreciate thanks, it. Michael. And thank you all for listening. This is uh, the Angel Podcast. We'll be back with another podcast before you know it.